0: Thank you for joining our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts Alicia Swami and Eric Johnson. And together we are Exposing
1: Mold. Today we have the honor of talking with Dr. Chinyang. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities they've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today.
0: Dr. Yang is an honored part of toxic mold history because he was really one of the pioneers. Dr. Yang, before we began recording, I had asked you to share a little bit about the Saratoga Springs and your work with Eckhart Johannine, and you pointed out to me that it actually goes earlier. There's actually an earlier history. So would you mind just sharing, sharing that history?
2: Yes, actually, this is touch on one of the document called New York City Guideline. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. I think New York City Guidelines on more, or Stacky Portrait, Archwa, the older name, actually, that happened in about 1993, and it all came about because of in New York City, the social service union, they serve service the the citizen of New York City, so they are in. In several different different buildings, some are government buildings, some are rental buildings, and they have a history of leaks. And some people have unexplained illness. So their environmental consultant was involved, and and they eventually involved Dr. Johanning, and they took samples into my laboratory for analysis. And and after analysis, I provide all these my. Micro- fungal names to the environmental consultants. And they came back and said, Dr. Yang, what do all this means? So I look up all the literature and give them all this information. And then start from there, the New York City Department of Health with Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Social Service Union organized a one-day event, a meeting, what they call more workshops. And after that workshops, let me just go back a little bit. In that meeting, the government invited five experts, including one from the U.S. CDC, and also some in, in private practice, as well as the Canadian government and also universities. So from that one-day event, the CDC draft the New York City guidelines and have the New York City Department of Health published. So that's where the New York City Guidelines, as I know now, original came from. And there, I think the first edition was published in late 1993 or 1994. And there are two revisions uh, since. So if you Google New York City more guidelines, you're gonna find the most recent editions. Now from there, Dr. Johanning organized the first Saratoga Spring Conference. And he asked me to join us as the organizing committee. And at that time, I was working for the New York, excuse me, the U.S. Public Health Service in Philadelphia. So the New York City the sort of the U.S. Public Service was all somewhat involved in that in that meeting. And there was the true first in this international meetings for more mycotoxins, and more associated uh, diseases, because there were some physicians involved, there are some microbiologists involved, and there are industrial right. hygienists, environmental consultants involved. So it was the true first meeting involved professionals as well as scientists and, and medical clinicians involved. And I think there were two additional So I talk about springs after the first one.
0: Prior to you investigating and helping out with the New York City guidelines, did you already know about the symptoms associated with mold illness?
2: At that time, I'm I'm more a scientist. I'm I'm not medically trained. So what I know is all from from literature, and and at that time we knew very little about what fungi or more can cause to people because traditionally in medical community they more focus on bacteria viruses in terms causing disease now fungi do cause infections so in medical community they more focus on the infection so we know histoplasmosis caused by histoplasma fungi Aspergillosis caused by aspergillus species. There are some physicians also into more uh, fungal allergies. Other than that, in literature, we know some fungi produce mycotoxins, and they are mycotoxicosis caused by human ingestion of mycotoxins. And that can happen also to animals, too. So that's the extent of it when we were in lay. 20th century. And there are a lot of these so-called sick building syndromes people experience when they are in offices and in their homes. And they could, and a lot of physicians cannot explain what happened. So things evolve and later and on people start connecting dots and finding their moisture issue in, in a lot of our old housing stocks or even new constructions and in commercial industrial buildings because of leaks and leading to to more growth and
3: human exposure. Good morning, Dr. Yang. I happen to have a copy of your book, and I remember uh, reading that you scoured the literature, and the only real early report that you could find was of Dr. William Croft analyzing some houses in the mid-1980s and found some toxic mold in association with the sick building syndrome.
2: Yes, there, there was, I think there was generally considered scientifically published and documented exposure to stachypositis in an in a indoor environment in, in housing. But all the literature, like in New Zealand and, and in Europe, there are documents of indoor environment become moldy or have more growth due to condensation or leaks type of problems. But usually those are more environmental study. It really did not directly link to human exposure and then and, and
3: disease outcomes. I uh, also read that Dr. Bruce Jarvis inadvertently started off the toxic mold frenzy by responding to Dr. William Croft and providing with information about stachybotrys and tricothecines, and this somehow made it public enough that people picked up on that and really attached importance to stachybotrys. Do you see any particular reason why stachybotrys would stand out as such a particularly bad mold?
2: Stachybotrys in, in associated species, as we, we discussed earlier, the stachybotrys is And the older name is Stachyboschia atua. Actually, in my colleague, we call it a complex, species complex. We now know it probably has two or three, even three different species in there. And the new species is called Haronata. And there's a possibly third one, you know, has been not studied enough, so it's not named. But the fungus is known to produce mycotoxin, and and the mycotoxin is toxic. But they're mostly in the outdoor environments. And, and I think that the con- early concern was actually reports from Russia horses or, or farm animals eat more stores and become sick. But then I'd like to suggest that we don't just focus on staggy with chattarum. And that's also, I tried to point out in the first New York City more workshop leading to the first edition of the New York City guideline is that when you have moisture problem in the indoor environment, if we give it time, a wide variety of more and ingrained bacteria, even mites and other insects going to grow. Just like in deserts, if you have a pool of water, it will eventually become an oasis, not green plants, but you're going to have birds and animals, insects, it will show up. It's a matter of time. If we, if we have moisture or water problem in the indoor environment and we don't deal with it, we don't control it. So when you're dealing with mold, I generally suggest some moisture control first. And don't overemphasize on stachybosus chaturum, because you're gonna have, if stachybosus grows, you're gonna have other variety of more growth. Aspergillus, penicidum, cladium,
3: trichoderma, a lot of different things may grow.
2: Okay.
3: Okay. In your book, I remember there was some debate about the toxicity of various species. And you replied in response to the question, if can it be sealed? Can we just somehow paint over it and cause the toxins to be sealed in? And your response was, if the mold is stachybotrys, the material must be removed. is that still the case yes that that's my not my specific opinion. The late dr phil
2: mori he, he's a very energetic energetic you know practitioner of investigating more cases and and other specialists and, and scientists pretty much agree that if you got more growth inside a building, the best approach is, is removal now you may not remove 100% of the spores because the spores are so small. You can fall fall into cracks and seams. But if you remove the moldy material, for example, drywalls, you probably just simply remove the moldy building materials, you probably can remove 95 to 99% of the fungal biomass. Okay, that's significant. But with more detailed cleaning, such as wiping or HEPA vacuuming, you can further reduce the fungal biomass in the indoor environment. So yes, so the answer is, it's, it's still true, moldy material. The best approach is to remove, it,
3: remove them and also keep the building dry. When we run into mold illness, We're often confronted by doctors telling us mold is everywhere. There's aspergillus in the air. You can't escape that, and you can never make a house perfectly mold-free. So are there some species of molds that are more toxic, and these are the ones we need to be concerned about? Yes, most spores are ubiquitous in air,
2: but they are outdoors in general, and in soil too. On the other hand, when we put up a building, we should keep the building dry. So that the more will not grow. Because if you, by the end, the indoor environment, you're going to have some spores around. But the trick is this. You don't want more growth to occur. You don't want them grow. Because when they grow, they produce a lot of spores. For example, many years ago, I did a quick study. Someone gave me a one square foot of stacky balls which infested drywall. So I do a, a control systematic study. I, major certain certain amount by weight I culture them out and I calculate back and what I got was that what that one square foot of drywall covered with stacky bosch heads, at least one million spores. if you go outside if you're digging your soil in your yard or in your garden you are not exposed to one million of staggy bosch spores. So what I'm saying is that, yes, you can expose to fungal spores, more spores outdoors. But if you have more growth indoors, your exposure is going to be substantially higher. And not only that, we know if you got more growth, they will also reduce chemicals. For example, the so-called musty, moldy odors. And and those are basically a mixture of different volatile chemicals. And some of them may potentially have human health effect. But at this time, we know very little. And after growing more, also obviously produce some secondary metabolites, which include mycotoxins and other possibly other enzymes. And some of the fungal enzymes are no allergens. So it means if you got fungal growth, you are exposing yourself to a soup of a variety of chemicals allergens and other things produced by fungi
3: the growing fungi i understand that stachybotrys doesn't really produce toxins unless it has a cellulose substrate such as drywall or hay to grow on that when they tried to study the toxicity and put it in a petri dish in isolation it didn't bother to produce toxins it needed both a threat, an external threat from some other bacteria or mold, and the proper substrate before it would even bother to produce toxins. Is this part of the confusion for this whole thing? I think early confusion
2: actually was that when you have a collection of, for example, 100 different isolates or different cultures from different locations or supplied by different scientists, and if you grow them under the same condition and you test them, then you'll find some produce macrocyclic trichothegians, and some produce other chemicals, and some may not produce or produce very small amounts. Now, later on, we realized that those, those mixed study was because we have more than one species in there. Now, if we look at the different angles, it's just like your hair color, my hair color or my skin colors. Okay? It's all genetic controlled. So mycotoxin production is controlled in the fungal gene, it's in the gene of stachyposis chartarum, for example. So it means it has the genetic capacity to produce mycotoxins. So all you need is that if they grow in a piece of drywall or in certain type of conditions they will produce in, in you may miss it in a short period of time or maybe happen that substrate may not be enough but
3: eventually they will produce so well, i understand that stachybotrys was identified many many years ago back in the 1837 i believe by joseph corda who first speciated stachybotrys charterum or stachybotrys atra and named it did he report any health effects from it at the time? Uh, not, not, I know of. the
2: The first significant study or or, or reported disease was I mentioned earlier. The Russian report they have farm animals ingest a certain moldy hay and become sick. And those moldy hay was later discovered stacky stachybotrys growth, but. My belief is that if stachyposis grow in the
3: moldy haze, you're going to have other microorganisms in there, too. What do you feel about the gaseous gas, the theory about the the moldy wallpaper or the mold growing on the the backing, the glue of arsenic-tinted paper and producing a toxic gas that made people sick, whereas normally arsenic wouldn't be a problem? I, I think those are the old days. I think those
2: are, if I remember correctly, there was a, one of those pigments. It's 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 made of arsenic co- chemicals. And in scopulariopsis, the happened to be able, able to utilize it and metabolize the arsenic and make it into the organic arsenic gas and cause people to sick from that. But I, I don't think those type of arsenic based dyes or pigments is in use today. I, I think those have not been used for many many years.
3: What's so, the possibility I, that other molds might be metabolizing modern chemicals and producing them in a breathable form? That's always a possibility. So so that's, so I think
2: that's a good reason in your office in your your house or any, any building, human constructed buildings, we need to keep it dry. If we can keep our building dry, our indoor environment dry, and have all the water under our control, for example, you know, the plumbing system doesn't leak, the sewage system doesn't leak, but the more growth should not happen. Should not happen so we need to, we need not to worry about all those complications. So the message, the message is very simple. Keep your environment dry. Any use of water should be under our control in our plumbing system or in our sewage
3: system. You know, I'm curious about uh, Stachybotrys chlorohalinata, because I hadn't heard about this until fairly recently. And the possibility that it produces immunosuppressive atronomes without the associated neuroinflammatory compounds so that you don't have the warning that Stachybotris would give you. You just have the immune suppression. Can you comment on that? Stachybotrys Chloroharanata was named in,
2: in, in publication. I believe it was in 2003 or 2004. And, and that's the extension of what I say in, 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 in late 19 excuse me, 20th century, like Dr. Bruce Jarvis and some other people, that when they study Stachybotrys chataram or Arthroa at that time, then they find a mixture of different results. Some produce certain type of mycotoxins, but the others, but then the second group may produce additional other, you know, additional mycotoxin. And so it's kind of extension from there. So mycotoxin profile, their production profile. And other information, and now also based on molecular data. So Stachyboschus chaturamate has been divided into two different species. And I think potentially there may be third species. It, it's not detailed, studied in detail yet. Uh, it's it's you know, waiting for someone to study. And, and a lot of fungi we run into in, in the indoor environment. It's the same. I mentioned about stachybord. Excuse me. Aspergillus it has been divided into six or eight different species. Cladosporium, some of them has been divided. For example, spherospermum like to grow on cold condensing surfaces or in the air ducts has been divided into several different species. So a lot of new study and the new names has been published over the last 20 years and mostly published by European research scientists. And I know that some, many of those are well-known, are very reputable, very respected scientists. So their study, I think, will stand up in, in, the, in, the, in the, my college literature now and in the future. So if anybody in, into this type of,
3: in terms of scientific study, should, should be familiar with this type of literature. We've heard some rumors that fusarium is increasing its toxicity due to the use of Roundup and various herbicides, pesticides. I personally, not aware of it. Just like in science,
2: it's all possibility, but I think fusarium is, in the indoor environment community, is misunderstood. Yes, fusarium is, a few of the fusarium species Can be fine grown in a very wet condition in an indoor environment but it's not very common most of the time if you do some dust sampling or air sampling and detect fusarium uh, i would say 95 percent of time or even 99 percent of time they came from outdoors and fusarium is the group or the genus of, of fungi that it's very important in plant pathology because many of them cause diseases in our agriculturally important crops okay and that's tell me and you is that they are associated with vegetation mostly and we know some fusarium in in northern climate in the northern part of the united states you you pretty much can predict certain fusarium species are going to show up like in late summer or early fall and some may be in early part of the season because some of them like to grow and infect germinating seedlings so if farmers start to plant corns, and and the, the corn seedlings start to germinate and they have what we call damping of disease which is caused by fusarium and this is an early part of the season, but there are some were associated with uh, crops in later part of the season. So most of the fusarium, I would say 95, 90% of the time, are more likely from outdoors than indoors. But I don't rule it out, okay? So I think they are misunderstanding of fusarium because I saw some presentations and, and some, some consultants reports and I, saw, I, I I believe many of those are erroneous. So you've got to be very careful. Another thing is this because Fusarium are important in plant pathology. So they have studied, the plant pathologist has studied for a long time about Fusarium. And Fusarium as a group is very complex. Okay, their genetic exchanges and, and their taxonomy, we still don't fully understand their, their taxonomy yet. Still, a lot of study being done because they do cause a lot of agricultural losses. So they are agriculturally important. And how troublesome is walemia? Walemia is it, again Wolinia. In in the most recent literature, actually, it's I think includes three different or four different species. Okay, Wolinia. Yes, they produce some chemicals that are considered mycotoxins. But wanimia are, are very interesting uh, first of all the first species published was actually by japanese and isolated from sorted fishes so they are what we call zero fetus they can tolerate uh, materials or substrate very low in water content or water activity now in the indoor environment we find this very common in the carpet dust it's not due to Liquid water loss, very often due to high humidity and occasional condensation. So they, they are more in a different environment. But just like anything else in the fungal species, like Stachybotrys, my suggestion is always keep your environment under control.
3: The internet is just raging over the unanswered question can you just bleach mold and take care of it that way? Yes, you can bleach the more, you can
2: kill them. But if you don't deal with your underlying problem, moisture problem, whether it's condensation or leaks, or excessive high humidity, poor ventilations, they will come back. So breaching is only a very short-term solution, may keep your mall away for a few days, two weeks at the most.
3: If if excessive moisture around, more are gonna grow back. Are there hardened spores that are so durable that they can withstand the bleach? Well, bleach treatment, you also need to consider several things,
2: okay? One is concentration of the active ingredient, hypochlorite. Secondly, you need to consider the contact time. For example, if you don't dip your finger into hot water, you just dip in and come out, you may feel a little bit hot. But it may not scorch your your skin, but if you put your finger into hot, boiling water, you stay there for one minute, and you know your skin may be burned beyond repair. so there's also contact time issues okay so it it's it depends, yes, there are some fungal spores and and fungal spores there are several different types. some fungal spore has very thick wall, so it means it's protective. So it requires longer time, longer contact time to, breach, to have the bridge show the desirable effect to, to penetrate and kill the fungal spores or kill the fungal colonies. So contact time, concentration is very important. RBS is water-based. You need to have the water as the medium to create a contact and penetration. Another thing about fungal spores is this. Most of the fungal spores are single cell, but on the end, there are some fungal cells are many spores or many cells. For example, alternaria spores, it can potentially have 10, 20, or even 30 cells. So if the bridge kills the outer 15 cells, the in the some of the cell inside may not be in contact with bridge, so they may survive. Yes, bridge is is the tool, but if you want to use it, you need to understand, you need to understand the concentration to use. You need to know how much contact time you need to allow the bridge to to interact and kill the spores or fungal colonies. Another thing about bridge is, two things about bridge is, your audience should should know very carefully is this. You don't wanna mix bleach with other chemicals. For example, you don't mix bleach with uh, vinegar. You don't mix bleach with uh, Windex because you can create a sudden release of chlorine gas, which is toxic. There are histories of people mixing a bleach with other chemical causing harms harms, or even deaths. Okay.
1: Huey Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has first-hand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash con. S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today.
2: And the second thing about bleach is this. We, we must be using it very carefully because if you use it without protection, it can burn the skins too. So every time you're going
3: to use bleach, you must, must be very careful. It's yeah, wh- we've heard about bleach being mixed with chemicals and producing a really potent gas, is it possible that microbial colonies themselves are producing a chemical that could mix with bleach and make that type of gas? No, chemically
2: we know bleach will react with vinegar or, or, or Vindex, or anytime you change the bleach solution with, with the what you call the pH in there, you will produce the, the gas form of, of chlorine or other type of chlorine-related chemicals. So all those chemistry are well-known. It's easy for you. You can just Google it. You know, There are all those, like Wikipedia, you're going to find those type of things. Some of have very detailed discussion of, of the chemical reactions. Your question, you know, whether it can react with, with, with the, the organisms, and
3: yes, it's, it's possible. And we've uh, heard that there's a possibility that mold when it's growing on cheap wood will follow the grain the mycelia will penetrate into the wood and even if you kill the surface mold that there's enough left embedded inside the mold that it'll grow back can that happen yeah yes
2: yes fungi will penetrate into wood you know the mycelium and the hyphae will penetrate into wood but primarily they come from outside in so it depends on the time the longer you allow fungi to penetrate to grow on wood and you maintain the moisture content, they, they will penetrate. And that's why some some fungi some depends on the species and the types. Some tend to grow on surface of wood. Some actually can infect standing trees from broken branches and penetrate and, and actually decay the center of a tree, for example. If, if you look, look at some of the pictures from those giant red wood. people can go inside and you, you can look at the, the standing giant red wood, you can see the interior actually hollow because they are caused by some wood decay fungi. Those are what we call in, in, in wood microbiology, we call it those are the so-called hard rot. It's the heart of the tree
3: got rotted away. Okay, there's a very popular theory that the reason for all these problems with sick buildings and mold growth is electromagnetic frequencies, Wi-Fi. In fact, this one theory says if you expose mold to uh, a Wi-Fi cell tower or router, it will increase its toxin production 600 times. Is that even possible? I'm not familiar with it, but my suggestion is this. You know,
2: just like what we know in the public news medias, there are misinformations, there are disinformations, there are fake news. I only believe and trust those peer reviewed scientific articles. So if you go to websites, the website is com, then I would give a huge discount. You know, I would trust anything more like gov, sometimes even edu, those type of website, those information are much more believable. com, you need to give a discount. Org, That's also you need to evaluate carefully. But if any piece of news, I will want to be able to trace the original scientific peer-reviewed publications. Okay. Over the last 30, 40 years, when I'm in this business or in this community, I run into so many pretenders. For example, I saw many years ago, pre- there's a pretension, you know, presentation say this, the soy sauce is black because it's fermented by aspergillus nitrogen. <laughs> okay, that's a totally false. You know, I, I came from Taiwan, yeah, in Asia. So, so I pretty much drink soy sauce grow up. Soy sauce is actually produced by different species of aspergillus, aspergillus or
3: rising. Okay, you need to double-check your your source of information. Yeah, these mold groups, they've got people terrified of drinking Kool-Aid or anything with citric acid because it's made from aspergillus niger. You need to understand, commercial citric acid actually produced by aspergillus niger,
2: industrially. I've never had a problem with it before, so I'm not going to worry about it now. (laughs) What I'm saying is, is, you know, there are a lot of good information in the scientific literature. Okay, unfortunately, people, it's, it's just too easy to, for people to make things up all these days with the social media, with the, with the web, internet, those type of things. Information spread very fast, so after a while you lost track of it, and that's why I say trust information only from scientifically peer-reviewed publications. Now let me just give you a little bit uh, small warnings. Even peer review, excuse me. Even peer reviewed scientific published articles or or, or or papers, these days we still we even need to be very careful. There's some of these so called open source publication. A lot of those you can actually pay a fee to to get things published. I run into this over the the last 20 years. And some of those publications are totally wrong. It's, it's worse than junk science. It's, it's basically
3: fraud. Yeah, once the uh, rumor gets started, it's almost impossible to stop it. Even the person who propagated the rumor can't do anything about it. Yes, it, it's, it's become very difficult. So what I'm saying is this, people are
2: in this, in the situation you have to deal with more whether you are suffering or you are consultants, just like anything else, do your own due diligence. Try to seek out the best information. You know, it, I would suggest the first step you don't want to get go get onto internet. The first step you want to do is go to a traditional library in the in in one of the major university in your area okay those good old detective work is more important because see a lot of those a lot of information i tell you yes some are are pretty new over the last 20 years but a lot of my knowledge actually accumulate in the 20th centuries you know 1980s 1970s and a lot of publication from go
3: back to 1950s 1940s yeah it's it's so important to go back and check the source Yes. and find out if the information stands up to scientific scrutiny. That's right. And one thing that I'm very curious about is that Dr. Shoemaker, Dr. Richie Shoemaker, set off a real firestorm with his books, Mold Warriors and Surviving Mold, and fed into the focus on mycotoxins. And then the last couple of years, Dr. Shoemaker has said that his newer testing suggests that actinomycetes and endotoxins are the bigger player than the mycotoxins? Many years ago, I, we, I and my colleague published
2: an article about endotoxins. I, I looked into endotoxin, endotoxin many years ago. You know, endotoxin actually produced by a group of so-called gram negative bacteria. They do have what we call uh, health effects. But let's also point out the importance of when we look at this type of issue, it's actually if you got got water problem in the indoor environment and we don't deal with it right away quickly, things can get way complicated. You're going to have a bacteria growth. You're going to have more growth. You're going to have yeast growth. You're going to have mites. Okay. You, you may have nematodes. In my practices, you know, we see a lot of mites associated with fungal growth because mites feed on fungi. And this is in the, in the literature from the 70s and 60s, okay? So you got more so problems, things can get, get very complicated. So endotoxin is not something new. So potentially, yes, they can have some, some com- complicating combinations. Actinomycetes in my practices, I look into it. The, the, the more traditional so-called actinomycetes is actually not very common in the indoor environment now actinomycetes the reason i say that is this my actinomycetes in bacterial taxonomy actually it's a very large group okay and some of those like corinibacterium, bacterium is considered in the actinomycetes in that group but the so-called wave fungi or the actinomycetes actually is not very common in the indoor environment you know, because in all the, old, the old literature, particularly in, in the occupational health associated with literature, some thermophilic echinomycetes were linked to hypersensitive pneumonitis. So over the year, there are some physicians, some, some consultant asked me to test their sample for thermophilic
3: echinomycetes. Actually, it's not very common. The Corianibacterium, is Pro- a renaming of Propionibacterium acne?s No,
2: Propionibacterium actually is an aer- and actually, if you look at the literature closely, they are actually associated with people
3: in the acne,s and they are in our skin. They are in that our was my body. understanding of Doctor Shoemaker's more recent theories: is that the actinobacteria bacteria is actually something on the and in the skin. Yes. Yes, our body. They are human associate, so it so, may so be it, that some so of this reactivity or what we thought was mold reactivity is actinomycetes in our skin. I, I think
2: there's a lot of proof to be done about that that theory. I don't want to say no. I'm I'm willing to to be open minded, but the core is in Dr. Shoemaker Shoemaker's for him to prove it since it, he raised the theory. But like I said, in our environment, there are all kind of different microorganisms. Some on our skins. There are certain yeast on our skin. For example, Candida albicans. It's it's very common on our skins, and our in on our bodies. And there are all kind of other different bacteria. If you look it up, you know just do a Google. You're gonna find there are some books, some microbiology books focus on human body microflora. There are quite a few
3: different bacteria specifically associated with our body. Okay, the fear of a botched remediation or the way mold is removed is that dried dead spores and their fragments will litter the entire area and you'll react to them for a long time. And so it's important not to just kill mold because it'll dry out and liberate all kinds of clouds of bad stuff. Would that hold true for actinomycetes as well? I mean, the,
2: the narrow sense of the actinomycetes, like I say, is not very really common in, in the indoor environment. Actinomycetes, the, what I call the narrow sense, narrowly defined, are mostly associated with soil. And you probably know, or your audience probably know, a lot of antibacterial antibiotics came from soil-borne actinomycetes, You know, for, for example, like streptomycins, all those type of things. And there are stories. Yes, some microbiologists working for pharmaceutical companies like Japanese and some, some of those in this country like Bristol-Myers and other, other major pharmaceutical companies. The old days, the radio sent out their scientists, microbiologists go out back like, to, to Africa or to the countryside or to the, to the mountains. And what did they do? They would dig out some soil and come back to the laboratory and they will try to grow out some and screen those economic cities, see if they have any antibiotic activities or not. That's how all these antibiotics came
3: from, you know, other than the penicillin. Amazing. In your opinion, what, what's the reason for this explosion in sick building syndrome complaints? I, I think each building is likely going to be very different.
2: A lot of time, it's ventilation problems. In the older days, there are a lot of wood products like plywood. you know, use the groove as very high concentration of formaldehydes, for example. Those poor quality formaldehydes. I think maybe 10 years ago, there was some Chinese imports, plywood or or similar type of wood products has those problems, if you remember from the news media. Okay. And also we use different products. For example, the old days, the toners from the copiers and printers are known to release certain chemicals. And obviously... If you are in a commercial building or or even in some, ha- most of the houses, if you have mechanical ventilation systems, you know, you have the air ducts. Now, over the last 20 years, we we have, we now have a, a industry called duct cleaning, but you and I are old enough to know 30 years ago, who is cleaning air ducts? Nobody knows you need to clean air ducts, and if you put your, your head into the air ducts, you're going to be going to find very dusty. If those with insulation in there, sometimes you're going to see a thick layer of more growth in those air ducts. So in the indoor environment, a lot of different things we need to in- look into. It. If, if, if there are some issues, don't simplify it. You know, Don't buy into just one single factor. It's the reason you need to find it. If you need the outside help, find a good, competent consultant you know, to help you. It's matter of step of elimination. It's difficult. I understand that. But don't jump into it and, and, and regret later.
3: Yeah, we, we just want good science to be applied to this problem. And during the 1994 Cleveland infant pulmonary hemorrhage incident that was invested, investigated by Dora Dearborn and Ruth Etzel, they seemed to hone in on stachybotis as being particularly problematic and they made a correlation between stachybotrys in particular and pulmonary hemorrhage. And it seemed like the research was going very well for a couple of years, and the correlation was holding up, and then it all seemed to fall apart. Was that ever disproven? I know Dr. Dorr-Dealbong, it, it's, it's, it's my personal
2: opinion. doctor Door Dorr-Dealbong is a very dedicated, very good scientist, okay? And I have no doubt doubt about their study and their publications, but I think we also keep in mind is this. Science is never based on one single publication. Think about this. Einstein talked about all this, that he has many, many different theories, right? We all know. Now, even today, the physics community is still trying to prove what he proposed 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. So science is never just based on one single paper. Okay. I think, I think in terms of the Cleafrance situation was, I I don't have all the inside information. My understanding is this, is that politics, money run ahead of science. Okay. So they there were not many follow-up
3: studies. In some way, it got stops. Yeah, it seems like the insurance companies would really have a lot to lose if any of these particular toxic molds were proven to be really, really harmful in that manner. There, there was one
2: one story I heard. I'm not, I don't have proof about it, but as one of the studies I heard about it, obviously there possibly other story and other situation and politics behind behind that big story.
3: Right? But as it stands, we don't really have a, a standard or a measurement of a particular level of mycotoxins that could be considered harmful such that that would prove your case in the court of law. It, it's difficult. Yeah, that that's an area of, of totally different study. You
2: know, like you mentioned, Dr. Bruce Jarvis. Bruce, Dr. Jarvis's laboratory, he's a chemist. His his laboratory is special Specialize in the chemical uh, a study of, of microtoxins, and from a chemistry, you need to get into the taxis, toxicity studies, for example. And then you may need to get into animal studies. you may need to try to you know I, I doubt you can do the human study now or, or even feasible. It's possible to do uh, animal studies and maybe even do cell culture study, those type of thing. So everything you add in lab, it can be very time-consuming and very expensive, and I I don't know if there are enough research funding for this type of
3: purpose or not. Yeah, and if we go back to Bill Sorensen's early work with innate immune function, it can dysregulate uh, cellular function at such a fundamental level that the toxicity might not be observed by a classical toxicologist looking for uh, a cell to be killed by. By this toxin. Well, the problem is this. I mean, I think we're gonna touch about is this.
2: You know, stacky pochis even in the better defined the the, the current definition of stacky pochis chatura. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about this another one called coral haronata, right? Yeah. Even even once starchy pochis it does not produce one single chemical compound. It produces several different chemicals. And I understand it produces different chemicals at different times. Yes, it potentially can be that way. So it means it makes the study extremely complicated
3: and difficult. So the fascinating thing about chlorohalanata is if it shuts off mitosis, cellular division, then it could conceivably cause cells to be dysfunctional without over toxicological effects that would be easy to, to determine. Well, that, that's
2: why at my age, that's why I, I tell people, yes, science is very interesting. Okay. If I, if I was 30s, I I'll probably jump into it to, to do, jump into the laboratory to do this, the studies of all these different things. But for practical purpose, I go back to tell people Focus on controlling your environment, control your water. You don't want to, we know drinking water should be in the plumbing system. We know waste water should go to the sewage system. You don't want it to spill over, you know, and even if there's condensation issues, you need to control your humidities. So I think that that's to me is it's more
3: practical to most people, to, to the general audience. Okay, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And I've been dominating the whole thing. And Keely, do you have any questions? Can, can I just just add one thing?
2: I, I talked to, uh, talk, talk to your co- co-host earlier before we started podcast. It's, it's, it's an issue we, we did not touch today is the, the PCR and ERMI testing for, for fungi in an indoor environment. Okay, and and indirect I touch it is that there are a lot of new sciences and new names, new fungal names, but the current commercially available PCRs was designed in late 1990s. So that system, that PCR system has never been updated, and we don't even know the Stay Boshi Chataram from that PCR system we did. did we detected it's, it's the narrow sense of chataran
3: or is the stachybotrys chlorharonata? We don't know. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I've seen a presentation that certain common chemical compounds can defeat the PCR testing, so it won't show up even if it's there. Yes, yes and, and yes, there the, are some chemicals, for example, gypsum dust.
2: The, the gypsum in our, our drywall, can interfere with PCR reactions.
3: From oh, my, man. That's incredible. So the, the very thing the yeah. stachybotrys would be growing in combination with yeah. would defeat the, our ability to detect it. And not only that, for example, we talked about breach earlier. Breach can defeat your
2: PCR, too. Biocide, the fungicide, can potentially interfere with the PCR. But my point is this. The Hermes and that list of 36 species of or fungi on the list. We don't even know the true names or the true identity of those, those fungi. So basically, it's good to go back to the the computer stuff, okay? You, know, you put in bad data into it, you come, you come out with junk, <coughs> okay? So we don't know what the, what we actually detect in those PCR systems. And those data will be used in ERMI. So garbage in, garbage out. And and I know commercially those tests is very expensive. So I, I just want to you advise your, your audience, be very careful with how you spend your money for those type of tests.
3: Yeah, just don't rely on those tests because they're not a, a totally complete definitive guide. No, it's, it's not. This, the, the system is not up to
2: date. And, and the calculation uh, is it, it's, it's suspect. And, and those, the guidelines. Another thing is that study originally is based on about 1,000 residential house and base dust, dust samples. So you cannot use those data for air samples. Okay. And those, those studies are based on in from residential buildings. So you cannot use the PC, those informed ERMI data from samples collected in the office building, for example, or from a hospital. Okay, so you really need to know all these backstories and and the details and how this study come from ins and outs.
0: And what would be the best and most reliable way for people to identify <laughs> fungi species if they if they felt the need or if they wanted to?
2: You just open the can of worms. <laughs> okay,
0: maybe we'll do a part two.
2: <laughs> That's right.
0: Uh, okay, we'll circle uh, back for that. But before yeah. we let uh, you go. I did, I did have some questions about the, the bleach, using bleach nice. on mold. I just have two questions about that. Um, we always hear people say that you should remove mold instead of killing it inside of your home, and that's why we have remediation companies to come physically take the mold out. If bleach is safe to use and fine to use, do we even need remediation companies? Or can we just bleach everything? Or are there some situations where, no, it really it shouldn't be killed in the house, it should be taken out fully?
2: If you have visible mold growth, okay, whether it's on a drywall or it's on, 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 on a piece of wood from your attics, those type of things, you need to consider, yes, drywall, I would say you remove it. But if if you see more growth, you will you will, the wood may be difficult to replace because it, when you take out a wood bin, the the house may collapse. For example, so you need to look at the situation.
0: So structural but, areas of the right. house might be a lot harder to treat, and so there's that's just right. obstructions there. I understand yes. that. When we talk about bleach interacting with other chemicals. Is there any threat of bleach interacting with mycotoxins since they're also a chemical?
2: Potentially, but we don't know. Okay. The, I, from what I understand, there's no study, study done to, to prove one way or the other. But it's potentially, in, in science, a lot of everything is basically it's, it's potentially uh, possible. All right. So that's why I, I suggest earlier, if you're gonna use bleach, You need to be very 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 careful okay in terms of remediation my suggestion is this okay if you are running into a situation your environment needs to do more remediations go to epa.gov websites go to new york city look up the new york city guideline i mentioned earlier i think the latest version is uh 2008 okay and there are some good professional organizations publish some good guidance documents like ACGIH, AIHA, for example, and and I think uh, IICRC, I think there are some good documents out there too. Okay, so basically what I'm saying is if you're a consumer, don't panic. Do some you your your search, educate yourself, okay? Removal, as I mentioned earlier, a good remediation company do a good job, should be able to remove 95, 99% of your biomass, fungal biomass, okay? Most of the spores, most of the hyphen, most of my city, okay? And then you can do the second step. It's, it's a detailed wiping and HEPA vacuuming. You can further reduce the biomass load inside your environment, for
0: example.
1: Thank you, Dr. Yon. Hey, mold doctors and experts. I'm speaking to you. Do you have patients that no matter how hard you try, you just can't help them in the way that they need? Are you treating mold, but seeing people stay sick or get worse? There may be some key points about toxic mold exposure that you are missing in your practice that patients need in order to support the best clinical outcomes possible. You can achieve superior outcomes by understanding the following, common failures of indoor mold testing and remediation, mold hypersensitivity, and residual contamination. If you struggle with any of these concepts in your practice, Exposing Mold is here to support you as you support your patients. We work with clinicians to help them understand the struggles of the hypersensitive mold-injured population. If you feel like you're not helping people the way you want, let us help you help others. Visit ExposingMold.com slash consultations and book your appointment with us today. Thank you for your time today. And we will circle
0: back in the future to get a part two on how to get reliable mold testing samples since we know that ERMI is an outdated test.
2: Let me just give you a quick piece of information. <laughs> I- Myself and and three of my colleagues just finished a a book chapter for ACGIH. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with ACGIH, the organizations. It stands for American Conference of of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. It's based in Cincinnati, Ohio. In 1999, they published a book called Bioaerosource Assessment and Control. You know, it's basically, it's a, almost like a, a bible of industrial hygienists when they do more investigation and assessment that book was out of date, so they are now doing the revisions and myself and three of my colleagues was were responsible for writing a chapter on fungi so this new chapter gonna is has significant expense from the old book And we'll have a lot of good information in there. I don't know when they're going to publish it, probably later this year, maybe next year. So, if you are interested, I think you should every so often just Google it, look it up for the book. I think you will find a lot of good information from that book because I know they find it's a very comprehensive book, not just fungi. They're going to have bacteria, which increment actinomycetes or or endotoxins producing gram negative bacteria, dust mites and mites and all other things. And sampling, testing, mycotoxins, endotoxins, all those things gonna be, and volatile, volatile organic chemicals gonna be in there, pressure. So just, just my last piece of information.
0: Letting us know, we will be sure to look out for your book.
2: All right, very good. Okay. Have a nice afternoon.
0: You too. Thank you, Dr. Young.
2: Thank you. Bye.